Uh, till 1924 when he was conditionally released from jail mm. and this uh, volume a contested legacy takes the story forward from 1924 till the time of his death uh, in 1966 okay okay so now given uh, um, you know we'll get to this thing about how he's been a sort of untouchable when it comes to uh, biographies right Hmm. um people hmm. have like kind of um, stayed away from writing about him but you went out there and uh, kind of like tackled the subject so tell me about what made you think of doing a biography of savarkar <laughs> so manjula i don't know i mean when i've chosen my earlier topics for biographies uh, too uh, including you know the musician gohar jaan hmm. and uh, veena maestro s balachander or the vodeyars earlier hmm. i think characters of the past who are either maligned misunderstood or completely forgotten mm. uh, they somehow attract me a lot more than the usual you know monochromatic much talked about uh, kind of characters mm. uh, so in the case of savarkar too uh, as you pointed out of his being an untouchable for uh, scholarly evaluation for biographies and so on um, his name evokes so much of a of passion both among his proponents as well as his opponents mm. uh, somebody who died way back in 1966 his name is invoked in political speeches rallies manifestos of uh, parties you know like we had the i think the bjp uh, promising a bharat ratna for him in their manifesto mm. for the maharashtra elections in 2019 and so on mm. so so much of an intrusion of a character of the past uh, in modern contemporary uh, public discourse and political uh, you know discourse mm. but then what is alarming is a shocking lack of uh, uh, any kind of academic curiosity or scholarly uh, int- uh, evaluation of the man mm. using sources uh, i mean with agenda driven books and materials have been churned out on him mm. but uh, a lot of the material uh, primary sources and also some of savarkar's own writings uh, in marathi mm. uh, have remained uh, off the bounds for most of the mainstream historians and commentators they've never been evaluated mm. and the last biography of his was written in the 1960s when he was alive by this man called dhananjay keer and that reads quite like a hagiographical mm. account though yeah it is a good compilation of all the events of his life but a lot of people don't take it too seriously mm. so for me uh, you know savarkar had been Uh, ever since in 2003 uh, you know the uh, the previous nda government under mr vajpay had uh, you know um, uh, 
put up his uh, picture in the central hall of parliament and then you had there was a huge hullabaloo about that mm-hmm. and also later on you know with uh, the infamous episode at the cellular jail where uh, mr mani shankar ayer got the plaque uh, in his uh, savarkar's honor removed and called him names and so on so his uh, this character had caught my attention right then and i honestly didn't know much about him mm-hmm. quite a shame considering i've been a history buff and you know uh, in our central syllabus uh, cbse syllabus those days in history i don't think savarkar was ever a part of it or even the kala pani and the mm-hmm. uh, other there they didn't form a part of our history textbooks mm-hmm. so he was an enigma and the the interest only got deepened uh, in more recent years when as i said he occupies such a center stage in every kind of uh, uh, political discourse if one party needs to get at another one they invoke his name mm-hmm. but then what do people who both support him and oppose him really know this man really know what he stands for really know what uh, he wrote and thought and philosophized i think that was a huge lacuna that i saw and i thought uh, the best way to Uh, you know as tony morrison had said if there's a book that you want to read and it's not been written yet you must be the first one to write it <laughs> <laughs> well i think in that uh, sense you have succeeded because you know there is such a paucity of material on um, mm. on any of the right wing figures actually so mm. um, which is I, i mean which is um, which is a lapse in a sense because how do you understand um where we are today if we don't know all the things like when i was reading your book there were so many things hmm. you know uh, that that one just vaguely knew of but you kind of you know like in the 1920s the communal conflagrations that were happening you know all that so talk about right. that and what made savarkar the man he was from at the beginning he wasn't quite like you know he wasn't what he ended up being so right uh-huh. i mean he ended up being in, in fact at the end of the book if uh, once uh, one goes through the entire version of it the the usual picture of him being this uh, you know minority hater muslim basher and all of those things that is usually fed to us mm. that actually somewhere collapses uh, you know considering the fact that even the hindu mahasabha that he uh, you know uh, uh, headed as the president it came up with uh, this document called the constitution of free hindustan mm. uh, in 1945 uh, in fact two years before independence and five years before the actual constitution of india uh, was drafted mm. and the got a rare document of that somehow sourced for this book and i was quite amazed myself to read in that that uh, you know the, the most ultra right wing party the hindu party so as it is branded was actually saying in this uh, you know document that their conception of a future hindu rashtra was one where there was no distinction of religion caste creed gender all indians who were born here or with parents here with domicile less than 7 years were to be citizens freedom of conscience to practice one's religion protecting the culture language public uh, you know subject to public order morality all this was to be given there would be no state religion in free hindustan or its provinces and the minorities would not even have to have a ghost of suspicion that uh, uh, their legitimate uh, you know cultural linguistic and religious rights would be impinged upon mm-hmm. and if at all there is then the state would uh, ensure that this is removed everybody is going to be equal in the eyes of the law uh, the majority community is not going to get any extra privileges 
on account of their numbers and on the converse the minorities are not going to get any concessions uh, just because they are a minority so uh, i mean we talk so much today about secularism and all of that mm-hmm. so the, the the idea of that was was enshrined in a document of the all india hindu mahasabha of which savarkar was a president mm-hmm. whom we today very happily dub as a communal uh, you know bigoted uh, kind of a figure mm-hmm. so that just shows again how uh, removed we are from you know history and uh, our um, our own past but yeah i mean truth be told the, the times that they lived in uh, you know in the 20s 30s you brought out the uh, you know the communal conflagration in india uh many leaders had uh you know a kind of suspicion about uh um you know the the community the muslim community in particular because of the the situation that was developing in india then mm-hmm. where on the basis of religion uh, this subcontinent was actually vivisected mm-hmm. so even if you actually uh, you know read someone like dr b r ambedkar at that time yes. uh i don't think he has very charitable things to say about islam <laughs> and uh, you know the the that uh, islam is a closed corporation it divides the whole world into darul harb and darul islam and then uh, it would not allow an indian muslim to have faith and allegiance to the to the country he is he or she is born into mm-hmm. and all of this so, but today uh, dare anyone to call ambedkar and islamophobe you know that doesn't happen <laughs> yeah but people yeah. have pointed out that he had these views about islam but um, also what i found interesting is that you brought this out his dialogue also with savarkar right you yes. brought that out in the book as well and i found that very interesting because that also is a missing chapter you know right yeah uh, in fact i was also pleasantly surprised in the course of my research that when it came to matters of uh, you know caste uh, amelioration or uh, eradication of uh, casteism and untouchability the views of savarkar and ambedkar had a lot more in consonance uh, you know than gandhi yes. who probably was at a different tangent yeah. and uh, so uh, though the two w- w- while he was in ratnagiri uh, for 13 years savarkar was in house arrest in ratnagiri mm. from 1924 to 37 and he was debarred from uh, entering active politics uh, by the british and so during that time he utilized that to you know um, uh, implement social reforms yes. and contrary to what we think that you know hindutva represents manuvad apakast hegemony and all these usual stereotypes that are built mm. here was the father of hindutva who was actually championing the cause of uh, uh, not just removal of untouchability as gandhi was propounding but uh, actual complete eradication of uh, the varnashram system itself mm. uh, you know right from breaking the system spoke about uh, you know intercaste dining intercaste marriages uh, temple entry for all by building india's first uh, temple where people of all communities could enter the patit pavan mandir in uh, ratnagiri mm. uh, which was actually priest would be someone from the lowest uh, caste of this uh, hierarchy and even the brahmin would have to go and bow down to him uh, to 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 officiate prayers mm-hmm. and also the first intercaste dining cafe yes. in ratnagiri at a time when you know even among the brahmins the deshasthas and the uh, konkanast and the chitpavans they would not sit together and eat uh, schools for everybody uh, all children of all castes were untouchable could also sit with them ganesh utsav for all communities so things like this which were more inclusive and he also spoke something important which he points out to ambedkar in his letters mm. that it's the usual construct we have is yeah there's an upper caste who's uh, oppressing the lower caste mm. he said but within 
lower caste there are so many stratas he he was a mahar uh, ambedkar mm-hmm. he, he those below uh, the mahar community there were so many below in that hierarchy the bhangis and so on mm-hmm. were the lowest in the whole uh, uh, hierarchy uh, there is oppression among them also so it's not just an upper versus lower but even within the so called untouchables there are f- substrata so let us remove and eradicate all of this mm-hmm. and that quite an annihilation of caste uh, kind of a mm-hmm. view mm-hmm. uh, perhaps gandhi did not because uh, agree to like many times he said i believe in the varnashram yes. system and the varnashram yeah. system is the bedrock of hinduism and so on so it's very interesting to see these contesting viewpoints or the contesting ideas of india as one may put it where uh, on important matters of caste nationalism religion and all of that uh, many of them agreed with each other there were also stark differences between them hmm. and coming from like where we are right now and you look back at this and you think hmm. that okay at least um, i mean it makes you feel that perhaps we've progressed in some some way in some mm. of these things because now of course intercaste dining are not such a mm. it's not such a big thing we don't think about right. so perhaps you know uh, uh, perhaps their efforts worked yeah. in many ways i true. guess true true um, but uh, i was also quite surprised by you know you quoted ambedkar talking about gandhi's views on caste and then i was thinking <laughs> and also savarkar and i was thinking both their views are the same like largely yeah. the same though they are coming from two different places right. you know and and gandhi seemed really out of sync with this <laughs> yeah including saying something like you know everybody in india cannot become a viceroy yes. or a prime minister Uh, you need to be born with those inherent traits i mean i don't know where that comes from in a democracy where anybody can aspire for the highest post you don't have to be a dynast <laughs> yeah i it, those those bits were quite i mean uh, they they quite shocking actually but, <laughs> so uh and then you know what also what i found like, what i found interesting about the book is really it mm. gives a uh, we're used to you know as students uh, the hmm. syllabus really focuses uh, on the congress um, you know the congress uh, view of what happened post independence right just during yeah. independence and post independence so this kind this book kind of also reveals that okay there were other stories as well so talk about that right yeah and that's something i brought out manjula even in my first volume where i said you know as you rightly pointed out that the story that we are fed of the freedom struggle is a very very simplistic a linear a monochromatic kind of a version yes. uh, like a playing out in front of our eyes like a, a attenborough film mm, you know yes, <laughs> it's just yes <laughs> and then finally one day we just just got independence because we kept saying quit india quit india and the british got fed up and they just and left we were, so but that we were non violent also yeah we were very uh, gracious we just sat and kept pleading with them and they got fed up of just our pleadings and left okay. i mean it's been almost one year of the farmers protests uh, a, a simple law like this uh, governments of the time do not you know go out of their way to uh, oblige iro mm. uh, armila went on her strike for years and years uh, but that didn't uh, you know shake up anything mm. so uh, i mean while i don't i'm not disparaging the philosophy of the, of a non violent struggle mm. which has its own 
moral uh, you know you put a moral um, pressure on uh, the oppressor yes. uh, perceived oppressor then but then how much of it actually brings results even for small things like one law what to speak of a colonial power leaving a country mm. so all through right from 1857 the uprising with savarkar called the first war of indian independence mm. till 1946 uh, naval mutiny mm. and preceding that the uh, the indian national army and subhash chandra bose mm. uh, and his efforts there was a continuous and an unbroken chain of armed conflict yes. and uh, and this has sadly uh, especially in post independence times uh, been suppressed so badly yes. that uh, we don't even know many of these names and savarkar in his early days was this firebrand revolutionary uh, leading the indian uh, you know independence struggle from uh, both within and later on outside india also in the five years that he was in london mm. so it was almost like one alfred hitchcock novel where there are spies there are bombs going out there are bomb manuals being smuggled and all of that mm. the someone who formed india's first uh, secret society the mitra mela which later became the abhinav bharat mm. he organized the first student bonfire to protest against the uh, partition of bengal in 1905 mm. in pune uh, and uh, you know all of these characters we just probably hear a lot about bhagat singh and the, that that whole era mm. but so many others across india i don't think that is Uh, uh, those people their sacrifices they gave up their lives and either you know ruined their lives or gave up their mm. lives so that uh, those stories are never told and truth be said uh, i think india finally won her independence uh, uh, thanks to only the violent you know uprising which even someone like a british prime minister clement attlee mm. had uh, you know after independence when he came to india in the 1950s Uh, in a conversation in calcutta with somebody he uh, with the judge of the uh, calcutta high court he had said uh, when he asked why because we were taken by surprise how come britain decided to you know give up uh, control over her most prized colony mm-hmm. and he clearly mentions there that uh, it was ina and subhash chandra bose and the F- efforts of the armed conflict which is what shook the uh, very foundations of the british empire mm-hmm. and further the question i had asked him Uh, what do you think was the impact of gandhi on your final decision to leave and uh, actually who was a prime minister who signed our transfer of power uh, in a very uh, s- smirkish smile he says minimal so you know because uh, including we now go to you know do a lot about the quit india and so on mm. the quit india was crushed within 2 3 months of its uh, launch in 1942 uh, and within a a day of it being uh, you know announced the entire congress top brass including gandhi was put into put in jail mm. so it was a leaderless movement and for all the non violence that was spoken about the quit india was a bloody violent uh, movement mm. where all the revolutionaries all the retired army people or those who were in the army they all came out of the woodworks and there was a bloodbath everywhere it was almost like a uh repeat of 1857 which is what shook the uh british empire mm. so uh, it really baffles me that you know in 1921 a simple incident of some people entering a police station in chauri chaura mm. and setting it on fire gandhi actually uh, called off the entire non cooperation movement mm. but the 1942 was a hundred times more violent uh, movement than what is made out to be mm. uh, and yet uh, you know we give credit uh, to that being the main cause 
So do or die, there was really no uh, no clear directives as to what that meant. Mm. It was, as I said, a leaderless moment. Mm. In fact, Nehru himself, I mentioned in the book, that he uh, regrets. They, they, the Congress actually disowned the Quit India movement initially. Mm. And he regrets saying decades and decades of... Uh, uh, non-violence that is being dinned into people's heads uh, that sadly people have not incorporated it and they've forgotten all about it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but today that becomes the narrative that we gave this slogan, we launched this movement. And so five years after that, the British left. So, you know, it's yeah. it, somewhere yeah. evidence doesn't yeah. doesn't quite end up. Yeah. Also, you know, I found it interesting, this, this bit where you said that, you know, uh, Perhaps if Savarkar had you know died early like uh, Bhagat Singh, then we would mm-hmm. have remembered him differently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we make heroes only of martyrs, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, where would that thought go? I mean, where, where you know, just let's go with that. As in, uh, if he was executed or something. Yeah, like how Bhagat Singh, I mean, now if you go to like a lot of northern towns now, Bhagat Singh, mm-hmm. you see you see his picture, you know, everywhere, yeah. right? He's, uh, he's revered. And um, really, it's not the same for anybody else. So let's talk about that, you know, this, uh, perhaps his death at, you know, a very young age. But then what happened to that guy, Gopal Das, 18-year-old, he was yeah. hanged. So, you yes. know, what... Or Jatin Das, who, uh, you know, was another revolutionary who actually um, uh, starved to death, uh, went on several days of fast and died, uh, fast and to death, mm-hmm. you know, but then we don't remember those yeah. two. So, I think it's a, yeah, it's, it'll, it's a hypothetical situation where, I mean, uh, Savarkar's viewpoint in the, in the jail when he was, was there's no point. Uh, dying, you can do a lot more for the country by being alive mm. than, of course, you can't choose the punishment that the government uh, gives you. So if he was he was given the probably one of the harshest uh, punishments in terms of for those living yes. uh, other than execution, which was two transportations for life, which uh, amounted to 25 plus 25, 50 long years. Mm. And at that time, he was a, 20, a 26 year old man uh, who was at the prime of his youth and career, pursuing a law degree from London uh, on a scholarship that he had got and gone there for five years. And at 26, with a young wife, a, a, a young son who was just born and all of that. And 50 years, if you were away, you know, at, and if you had at, uh, at all come out alive, you'd be 76, 77. He was to be released in 1960 uh, after being arrested in 1910. <laughs> that was the, you know, the British used to hang on his neck, uh, uh, you know, a locket which had the name written, 19, which had the number 1960 written on it so that every day he's looking at it and knows, you know, it's going to take that much longer for me to get out <laughs> of this uh, place. So in such a scenario, you know, what is achieved by, uh, you know, just rotting in jail. And that's why he would advise all the fellow revolutionaries at Kalapani mm. uh, to somehow get out of this uh, hellhole. Uh, many of them, you know, the kind of inhuman tortures that they suffered, many, most uh, people, young people that they were, you know, in their uh, late teens, early 20s, hardly educated, a lot of them from Bengal, uh, you know, who either went uh, senile mm. uh, because of the, Kind of torture, or many of them committed suicide. Indu Bhushan Roy, one of the uh, revolutionaries, it was Ulaskar Dutt who 
was admitted to the asylum and so in fact the british started an entire asylum in port blair uh, at haddo island uh, just to put all these revolutionaries there because so many people were going mad so in such a scenario not only did savarkar keep his mental strength but he also inspired the others not to commit suicide and to kind of uh, sign those uh, what is now infamously called mercy petitions yeah. and then get out of jail because no purpose is served by just uh, you know undergoing this torture of course if you're hanged which you can't choose yeah. it's a one time Uh, liberation from all your uh, you know woes but uh, when that's not happening and day in and day out you need to uh, you know suffer even for the basic human facilities like a toilet uh, going to the toilet at your um, uh, you know uh, will and wish or getting good food to eat good uh, medical facilities none of this being provided to you uh, what a uh, purpose is served either to yourself or to the nation by being in such a situation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's really to his credit that when he came out he he took on this thing about you know social reform which itself is a i mean from what i'm reading in your book i mean one knows from family history and all that it was very entrenched and people were you know like about shadow pollution which wasn't there in maharashtra but was in other parts of the country so you can imagine mm. at that at the same time how much uh, segregation of the castes was there and for somebody to yeah. go in there and to i would have thought that his struggle with the orthodoxy you know the mm. the orthodox establishment of hinduism would also have been very huge right so oh yes Oh yes, because he was a Chitpavan Brahmin himself, yes. and to see one of them doing something like this, uh, so in in fact that uh, opposition to him continued even after his uh, coming out of uh, the captivity in nineteen thirty seven, and these were. Uh, I, I mentioned that that many of even the Congress workers, you know, wherever he went, he was always welcomed with black flags. There were stones thrown at him. There were several attempts made uh, on his life too, as the pres- when he just came out of uh, captivity in 1937. Mm. Uh, and this was all because of the kind of uh, you know very nihilist kind of social reforms that he was uh, bringing about. And uh, somewhere I also mm. see that as one of his failings, where. uh you know to to create social reform you uh, it can't be such a you know sh- huge shake up it probably has to be step by step and piecemeal and get people which is what gandhi was good at he mm. understood that you can't shake up a society which is as uh, you know orthodox and traditional as indian society is and expect that everyone is going to come along with you mm. so in fact uh, even in that chapter on caste uh, i've mentioned how not only him but many of the other members of his uh, group the ratnagiri hindu sabha mm. uh, people would not uh, um, you know get into marriages with their families because they were all considered polluted mm. uh, they would not get uh, cooks to cook for these intercaste uh, dining sahabojan uh, uh, you know uh, occasions that he would organize uh, and even if he was invited to uh, you know events in other people's houses uh, because of this there would be uh, there would be separate seating uh, made for him and so on and he was like it's, it's fine you know you have to have even my own followers if some of them have the sahabojan with him go back to their home and take a bath <laughs> you know then <laughs> so 
so i think it has to uh, the 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 need the the realization has to come from within the society and it has to be uh, you know that way introduced um, i think the backlash from the orthodoxy i think that was really something that he faced uh, and something that we would not imagine mm-hmm. uh, you know father of hindutva yes. <laughs> to actually be so non orthodox uh, anti ritual anti caste uh, and to a large extent uh you know atheist is not the right word this word called nirishwarvad where you know you have a very uh different conception of agnostic kind of a conception of god and all mm-hmm. of that <laughs> Hmm. and you know it's really what's interesting also is that his uh conception of the consolidation of hindu um hindu hmm. society so let's talk about that because that's what uh, hindutva is right true true uh so yeah i mean in, in fact even the uh, the uh, genesis of hindutva uh, as i traced in this first volume hmm. happened when he was in jail in 1923 and as a response to the khilafat uh, movement that gandhi ji had uh, launched then mm. uh, and what was the khilafat it was like uh, he was actually uh, getting the mobilizing the muslims of india on a cause which was not even indian i mean the uh, reestablishment of the caliphate in turkey mm. uh, you know which um, which had been won in war in the first world war by the british mm. so gandhi ji promising the muslims that you, uh, we will help you uh, reestablish the caliphate in response to your support to the non cooperation uh, movement mm. so it was almost like a barter mm. and uh, gandhi ji had promised that in one year we will get both swaraj as well as uh, reestablish the caliphate and neither of it happened obviously mm. uh, and so the 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 communal uh, you know tensions that followed uh, all over india because the mobs went on a rampage uh whether it was the mopla carnage in malabar or uh riots in kohat gulbarga panipat calcutta delhi it's different parts of india the assassination of swami shraddhanand of the arya samaj all of this uh and gandhi's response to all of this was uh, rather pusillanimous and uh, you know condescending mm-hmm. uh, and so there needed to be a intellectual counter to that to because the hindus according to savarkar were probably being led by a pied piper to their uh, uh, to their disaster so you needed an answer to political islam which was what was hindutva mm-hmm. and uh, right at the beginning of uh, the treatise he says the hindutva has nothing to do with the theological aspects of the hindu religion uh, it is more of a cultural a nationalistic identity marker and also as i said uh, a consolidation of uh, the hindu community which was already splintered into so many groups and castes and subcastes and all of that but also uh, important at that time when you know you had the communal award uh, by the british uh, where representation in parliaments in legislature all of that was being given on the basis of population mm. so more uh, you know in the census different communities did not consider themselves as hindu and just said we were sanatanis or we were arya samajis mm. or we were something mm. else then was and the muslim community actually identifies itself not as shias and sunnis and barelvis and all of that but as a muslim mm. then their numbers are obviously going to be much more than yours and uh, depending on the number the british is uh, british are going to give you seats in the legislatures and parliaments uh, so you're going to lose out 
politically uh, the leverage that you have so this consolidation was also necessary not only from a social you know uh, amelioration that caste had to go and all of that but also from the from political and a very pragmatic approach mm. that you need to unite yourself the other aspect was also which again ambedkar also flags in is the uh, uh, you know he because savarkar always spoke about militarization of the hindus mm. and that also i mean ambedkar says in the 1930s the 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 communal composition of the indian army there were about 30 to 35% of uh, muslims in the army but between 1930 and 1914 in just those 10 years this number rose from 30% to anything between 50 to 60% mm-hmm. uh, and ambedkar himself you know um, you know wonders that this is going to be a cause of alarm for the hindus because uh, these people are being dubbed as the gatekeepers of the country will uh, what will be their allegiance if a core religionist especially from afghanistan is going to invade india uh, and this these ambedkar's words not yes, mine yes, <laughs> so uh, so there is a urgent need to rectify this imbalance and uh, because in the case of a in the eventuality of the british leaving india one community is going to be you know ready and armed and uh, have its uh, feet in the army uh, whereas another one has been been made so emasculated with the whole idea of nonviolent uh, uh, you know uh, philosophy that in the event of a civil war uh we know who's going to be at a disadvantage so there has to be a, a counter a defensiveness to uh to protect yourself and that's that was what was the philosophy behind the whole militarize yourself for self defense so uh consolidation for political and social purposes and this whole militarization for uh self defense in the context of what was happening uh, you know in the in the society in the polity and in the army i think that was what defined uh, many of these policies that uh, that that were brought about okay okay another the uh, interesting thing that you pointed out in in the book is that how until until you say that until 1934 members of the hindu mm-hmm. mahasabha and the congress shared common platforms and had common leaders yes. and their meetings too were held in the same uh, pandal most often yeah. but with time the divorce between the two ideologies became imminent you know this is not something that we mm. even think about today yeah true uh, and that divorce happened only after savarkar took over as the president of the hindu mahasabha in 1937 mm. uh, because when he came out of uh, you know the conditional captivity that he was held for 13 years the congress actually went head over heels to get him into their fold mm. uh, you know including in his in the public addresses and welcome speeches that were made for him in different parts of uh, maharashtra mm-hmm. you had messages from nehru from subhash bose from rajgopalachari from so many people uh, you know saying please join the congress we'll and strengthen our hands but uh, he made this very curious and that's how he actually embittered the congress saying uh, i'd rather be in the uh you know the 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 first row of uh, the last row of the patriots than than the first row of the traitors and he considered <laughs> the congress which he <laughs> felt had gone too far in this policy of muslim appeasement to be treacherous to the country mm-hmm. uh and so that divorce happened then where he said the hindu mahasabha needs to form its own policies and programs and enter electoral politics because 
after 1935, the Government of India Act, you had uh, elections to the various uh, uh, you know presidencies, and so instead of just having the Congress and the Muslim League as the main parties, he posited the Hindu Mahasabha too as one of the fighting fit, mm. uh, electorally fighting fit kind of uh, political parties which could take on both those uh, you know major entities, mm. and there was this constant tussle that. The Congress, which had appropriated to itself uh, of being the sole voice of the Hindus, mm. uh, that uh, we are also there and we are the you know the better representatives because we speak about the uh, you know the the uh, welfare of the Hindu community and all of that. So that started in the in 1937, but it was very short lived. By 1946, uh, the Hindu Mahasabha came a cropper in the elections, and after that, of course, it petered down. Uh, in its uh, importance and more so after Savarkar's, you know, implication in Gandhi's murder. Yes. And the the the, the uh, blame of all of that went on the Hindu Mahasabha. Even Shama Prasad Mukherjee, one of his protégés, yes. uh, left the Hindu Mahasabha and formed his own, you know, the Jansak, mm. the precursor to the BJP. Yes. So um, it that was uh, it was a very short lived um, about i would say about 10 year uh, you know run for the hindu mahasabha where it really became a strong competitor to the political parties of the time hmm. so let's talk about you know the whole gandhi trial and uh, murder trial you know and uh, mm-hmm. and the treatment of savarkar in it right you know? yeah so uh, yeah i mean uh, this is something that of course keeps coming up on and off mm. that uh, not on and off all, all the, time, the time that you know, time. Even, yeah. <laughs> that you know he was he was actually implicated by association mm. because he was close to nathuram godse and narayan apte the two principal assassins yes. but you know prosecution built its case uh, completely on on flimsy evidence on the basis of the confessions of a police approver mm. uh, in the case who was Digambar Bardge. Wow. Bardge was also, he yeah. sounds like quite a yeah, character. Oh my God, he was quite a, you know, like this Bahurupia in that Ray yeah. series who keeps changing, <laughs> who keeps get, getting into different kinds of uh, avatars and all of that. So it was Bardge's, uh, you know, words where uh, where he claimed that Godse and Apte went to Savarkar's house and uh, had a brief confabulation with him. And after that, he said, Yashasvi hoon ya, or be successful. Mean that could mean anything, right? Exactly, yeah. And that was the only, that was the only basis to implicate this man. Mm. And the police actually, you know, raided his house. Uh, all his, uh, you know, correspondences between him and Godse and Apte were all taken uh, over and some uh, thousands and thousands of pages of uh, doc- correspondences with everybody mm. in the Hindu Mahasabha uh, evaluated. And after one year, the uh, court actually of Justice Atmacharan in the Red Fort uh, trial in Delhi mm. uh, acquitted him. Not as what is made out that it was lack of evidence, but it actually says that there is no evidence at all, mm. or there is no uh, there is no case to assume that he was implicated. Uh, uh, he's to suppose that he had any hand in what took place in Delhi. Mm. So, uh, but and this happens in 1948. The the verdict comes out, uh, but then uh, in sorry 1949, one year mm. later after the assassination, and 
several years later you had this kapoor commission uh, that comes up and that also how does it come out is uh, you know godse and apte and all were, were executed but there were other uh, you know conspirators um, vishnu karkare then um, this um, gopal godse mm-hmm. nathuram's mm-hmm. other uh, all of these people were released after in in 1964 mm-hmm. and they are given a public welcome in pune and during that time you had this man gv ketkar who was actually tilak's grandson and the editor of the kesri mm. in a public felicitation that was organized for the release of these uh, characters uh, ketkar goes into a flourish and then he says uh, i already had prior information that godse was going to kill uh, gandhi and i had uh, conveyed this to uh, the government of bombay which was led by a congressman bj khair mm. uh, or something to that effect mm. and in a you know even gopal godse is running to him and saying hey you're talking too much and you're going to <laughs> put us all in trouble just as we got out of jail mm. but ketkar is in his own flourish he is like uh, don't worry today we are an independent nation no one can put me behind bars and very promptly in a few days they were all back in jail oh, because uh, <laughs> and obviously uh, information like this rocked parliament the maharashtra assembly and that's how to to examine precisely this aspect that did uh, this man ketkar no have prior information uh, if so was it passed on to bg khair and to sardar patel mm. and if it was passed what uh, what action did the government of india and the government of bombay uh, state take a, uh, you know a, about this threat to mahatma gandhi's life mm. that only terms of reference of the jl kapoor commission which was set up in 64 and it came out um, um, you know in 69 by when savarkar had already died but there also i mean uh, the kapoor commission did not get into the details like the um, uh, trial court did like the correspondences were not checked between savarkar and the uh, and godse and all of that important people now the uh, bardge had made this confession about yashasvi hoon ya and to corroborate that it was said that savarkar's assistant gajanan damle and uh, his security uh, appa kasar they had under police coercion actually uh, given a statement that yes we heard him saying this so but then none of them were uh, you know interrogated by either the trial court or by the kapoor commission though they were still alive oh. and 101 witnesses were you know uh, testified before the kapoor commission but nothing happened mm. and so throughout the kapoor commission it's a voluminous report and all the all through uh, justice kapoor just says uh, savarkarites you know there is a strong uh, militant faction within the hindu mahasabha who call themselves as savarkarites Uh, who plotted this murder and that was true i mean godse and apte were beholden to savarkar and so they would probably uh, call themselves savarkar right mm. but that didn't mean that he was actually the you know who instructed them to do this or that mm. uh, you know so much and without any of this uh, backing evidence in a very surreptitious way in one paragraph and that's not even a main conclusion of the report it just says that um, on the basis of all that i have said there is very little evidence that uh, i mean very little evidence which destroys the um, uh, whole idea that savarkar was in fact behind the murder so it was just like that in a very circuitous manner mm. uh, the commission report implicated him uh, but then Uh, what i think has escaped also our attention was much later as 
late as 2018, uh, you know, there was a PIL that was filed in the Bombay High Court and then the Supreme Court of India, uh, where somebody who, you know, a Savarkar fan, um, this man called Pankaj Fadnes, he filed a PIL saying the Kapoor Commission has tarnished Savarkar's uh, image and we need to rectify it and all of that. Mm-hmm. And there was some other some conspiracy theory of this. There were four bullets that hit Gandhi. So uh, where was the fourth bullet coming from and all of oh. that. So on Savarkar's, uh, you know, involvement on 28th of March, 2018, after uh, an amicus curiae had been appointed by the Supreme Court, the former Chief Justice of India, Justice Sharad Bobde, mm-hmm. and also Justice Nageshwar Rao, they reinvestigated the entire you know the 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 uh, trial papers the uh, kapoor commission report and on the basis of that they gave the final thing that the submission of the petitioner that shri savarkar has been held guilty for the murder of gandhi ji is completely misplaced mm. so out of that you know the supreme court three times this uh, thing has been evaluated reevaluated investigated and the supreme court the highest uh, court in the country has taken the trouble to set up an amicus curiae and gone through this and given this verdict mm-hmm. as uh, late as 3 years ago mm-hmm. saying uh, this whole idea of the petitioner uh, being in, uh, uh, the savarkar is involved is misplaced i, th- I thought that should kind of set yeah, this whole matter to <laughs> Yeah, but it doesn't because politics is so vibrant That's and you need, need this all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, one of the other thing that really struck me is that, you know, after the, the murder of, uh, mm. you know, after the murder, the riots that broke out in Bombay, okay, uh, and in yes. Maharashtra, I always assumed, I mean, one always assumed as a person who's grown up, uh, you know, now uh, that, I mean, in not in the independence era or the post-independence era that uh, it's Hindu-Muslim violence. I mm. It didn't strike me that this was an attack on Brahmins in Pune and in throughout Maharashtra. This is really news to me. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it, uh, in fact, it, uh, it, it was really shocking and I had actually done a through social media i knew about this but there was no there were no documents about around this whole uh, pogrom i would yes. say it was not just a, it was very similar to what happened in 1984 the anti sikh riots yes. uh, in so just because you know six seven of them who were a part of the main conspiracy were brahmins uh, the entire maharashtrian brahmin community initially anybody who was who carried the surname godse was literally burnt alive in several places and then really? uh, like, it, it, yes God. in in different parts of maharashtra and uh, and then you know the the anybody who was a chitpavan brahmin and then the thing also extended to a deshasthal mm-hmm. uh, brahmin entire villages were ethnically cleansed and uh, the the they had to run for their lives to uh, cities like bombay and pune and so on and this is something that uh, has complete and this was engineered by congressmen uh, and this was mentioned in uh, by none less than Dwarka Prasad Mishra, who was a, a Congress Home Minister of the Central Provinces, that these mobs were led uh, by Congress workers, many of them Congress office bearers uh, who did this. But the manner in which the case was completely hushed up, uh, uh, FIRs were not uh, filed in many uh, cases, uh, property uh, damage to the extent of crores in those times 
uh, not even factored anywhere zero documentation journalists were not allowed to cover these uh, riots the only uh, indication of that comes from the new york times mm-hmm. uh, you know which about one of the journalists robert trumbull who mentions this uh, on 31st january 1948 uh, but other than that indian journalists uh, the indian press did not even carry uh, most of it kesri was uh, the the one of the few who did have some coverage but for that also it faced a lot of uh, uh, opposition and it had to apologize mm-hmm. and all of that so uh, so what began in bombay pune nagpur the later shifted to the rest of maharashtra where the bulk of it was faced in uh, the deccan region you know satara belgaum and kolhapur the patwardhan princely states of uh, miraj and sangli and all of that mm. and uh, this is so as i said i just crowdsourced uh, a lot of uh, you know family history of people who have faced this and i was inundated with um, people who were willing to pour out their hearts uh, you know saying this is what happened to my grandmother my grandfather and uh, you know many of them very scared to even come out and uh, talk about it openly so in the appendix to the book i actually have some of these voices probably coming out for the first time in print <laughs> where you know they, yeah they were like uh, we would not want to be named because the people who led the riots uh, or uh, you know they, uh, their descendants their uh, whatever the, the same party and others you know who are who um, you know played an important role then still hold uh, you know very important positions in maharashtra and so mm-hmm. nobody would want to uh want to kind of uh you know um, uh, get into trouble even now after so many years mm-hmm. uh, the fear is so palpable mm-hmm. in fact several people who were in their uh, you know late 80s and 90s i also interviewed some of them on a zoom call and captured some of their first hand who were just 15 years or 20 years old when these uh, horrendous uh, you know riots took place uh, who mentioned how people would just barge into their homes set their homes on fire people died uh, in this all because you know god save was a brahmin so <laughs> and you know, this kind of and and this from a party which till then had actually spoken only about ahimsa and non violence and then the 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 masaya of non violence dies and you get into this violent uh, carnage so and then worse is you also deny the victims the very fact that you know such a thing happened uh, and that's more i think grievous than uh, the the carnage happening itself at least we know that there was a 1984 riot that happened mm-hmm. then the victims and justice is another issue but uh, here most people including well informed people don't even know that such a event happened in our in- immediate independent uh, indian history honestly uh, this where- is the first time i've heard of it actually <laughs> <laughs> and you know the it came to light only when you know a scholar researcher in the 1950s Maureen Patterson I actually yeah, quote her also her. Yeah. yeah so she says she was completely denied access to uh, documents by the Maharashtra government the Maharashtra police and so she says the extent of uh, exact number of deaths and injury i think it will be lost forever uh, she estimates the damages to properties also between anything to 6 to 10 crores which also is a gross underestimate according to mm. her there several marathi books that were written uh, you know as novels mm. uh, which uh, 
talk about um, you know people who went through this uh, they 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 poured their hearts out in their novels and those are perhaps there but those don't become uh, you know authentic sources yes. of history because there's a lot of uh, you know yes. uh, fictionalization of the thing but it's it's really sad that you know we we let something like this pass without any kind of retribution to the uh, or justice to the victims yeah and that it, it and and that we've forgotten completely i mean yeah, the the fact that i a reader would just generally think it's a hindu muslim riot and not an you know not a, a, a actually a caste riot right led, yeah, yeah. Uh, led by well a certain <laughs> And so yeah i think that's the whole thing that we say history repeats itself because we don't listen yes. uh, the first time 1948 and very eerily the numbers just you know interchanged to 1984 yeah, <laughs> a similar situation a leader is uh, assassinated and members of that political party go on a carnage against uh the members of the community of the assassins uh, so that i think is uh, and we we didn't take any corrective measures in 1948 so it repeated itself in 1984 mm. and i don't know if we still don't set these uh, mistakes right then history has yeah, a which is not happening in 2002 also i guess i mean correct yeah well okay so i think i've like i can keep talking to you about this because i find it look very interesting and since i haven't i have to admit to the readers it's 700 pages so i haven't managed to finish it yet but <laughs> i will so, you know but we have to stop talking this like this can go on for hours i can keep interrogating you <laughs> but for the readers go out and get savarkar a contested legacy 1924 to 1966 this is part 2 of uh, vikram sampath's uh, uh, savarkar biography it's really very interesting and if you're interested in indian history and the unwritten parts of it i think this will give you much food for thought thank you so much vikram for coming on the show thank you manjula and i think you brought out all the important points that i needed to convey through you to the readers <laughs> so thank you so much for uh, such an engaging conversation thank you bye bye this was a hindustan times production brought to you by hd smartcast hd smartcast